invite you to take your Bibles and join me in Habakkuk. Saw a little meme going through Facebook this week where the pastor goes up and turns to, says, please turn to Habakkuk and immediately starts reading. You'll notice I have not done that. Not going to do that this morning either. Uh, we are in Habakkuk chapter 2. Uh, so far in the book, we've seen the process by which Habakkuk's faith was made evident, even though the circumstances around him were creating a fog. He couldn't necessarily see what God was doing, yet he was challenged to live by faith. In fact, we recognize that, uh, that Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, that second part, is really the theme of this, fir- of this book, that the righteous shall by his faith live. Indeed, as we've traversed further into the book, we see how Habakkuk's faith in God is not deterred by the injustice and immorality going on around him. Uh, At first, he didn't realize what was going on, but once he hears from God that God is doing a work, even though uh, the the world seems to be falling apart around him, uh, then his faith does actually remain, and we see that evident uh, throughout the book. Last week, we handled Uh, three of the five woes. Uh, This chapter has five woes pronounced against the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And uh, we handled the first three of them. How God, uh, even though God is using the Chaldeans to, uh, to inflict pain upon the Judean people, uh, God is actually going to uh, take this unprog- unprovoked, aggressive invasion of this country as, uh, as a sin and is going to punish them for that later. It is not every day that the picture painted in our Sunday scripture is what we see going on in the news around us, but these are those days, interestingly enough. So I invite you to join me in verse 15 as we read from Habakkuk chapter 2. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's pray. Father, we need to hear from you today. Use your word in our hearts to do just that. To speak to us. To show us our own sinful ways, our own idolatry. And to point us back to our loving Savior. Father, guide my thoughts and my words. May they be pleasing in your sight. May you do a work in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So last week we looked at woes 1, 2, and 3, which warned the Chaldeans that for all they have taken, they will be held liable. As someone who has borrowed a great sum of money and doesn't return it, uh, the Chaldeans' creditors are going to come back and take them out, is the picture that was painted. In addition, God will hold them accountable for their arrogance, for their egotism, for their uh, self-aggrandizing. And most egregiously, we noted last week that the enemy's empire building came at the expense of blood. It wasn't just that they were building a name for themselves. They were doing it by destroying other nations, by killing other people. They had not grown because uh, the things that they were doing were right and helpful and caused their society to grow. They had not expanded based on their own merits. They had expanded on exploitation and murder. And God was going to hold them accountable for it. Today we look at woes number four and five as the Chaldeans worship their own ambitions and their own man-made idols. So in verse 15, we see the empire forces the people to drink wrath, becoming inebriated and humiliated or shameful and embarrassed. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. I have never been drunk. I don't drink, so therefore it's hard to get drunk. But I've been around people who have been inebriated, and I recognize very easily, and you have too, you've seen it, that people make a lot of bad decisions when they're drunk. And they end up regretting those decisions later. We call that shame. We call that embarrassment. What makes the actions of the Chaldeans so despicable is not that they are getting drunk themselves, though uh, wine is a traitor to them as well as we saw in an earlier woe. It's that they're making others get drunk. Now, this is a picture. This is not that they're forcing uh, the, the Judean people to become actual alcoholics and getting drunk. Uh, but, but what's despicable here is they are forcing shame on a people who have not directly brought this shame on themselves. It's one thing to get drunk and wreck your car. It's another thing to make someone else get drunk and then they wreck their car. And that's the picture that is uh, painted by this prophecy against Chaldea. There is absolutely no integrity on the part of this aggressor. In verse 15, we see the word wrath. This is the same Hebrew word for venom. Venom isn't just a poison. It's a very powerful, fast-acting, deadly poison. It's what makes poisonous animals poisonous. That's why garter snakes are less of a problem to us than, say, a rattlesnake, because garter snakes don't have the poison, the venom. <clears throat> so knowing that the Hebrew understanding of wrath, and wrath is an appropriate uh, translation of this word, uh, knowing that the Hebrew understanding of wrath and, and intense hot anger is directly related to their understanding of venom makes this a more colorful imagery to us. The enemy will pour out this venom, this wrath on its prey, on those who are basically in its way, and as a result, they are going to force Judah to be left in a broken and shameful state. Judah's shame would be 
undeserved. And anyone who would look at what the Babylonians are going to do to them and see what has happened, they would say, they didn't deserve that. In fact, they would take pity on them for being a very real victim. God is going to turn the tables on them. They are going to force Judah to be embarrassed, to be shamed, to be brought down. But God is going to pour out his wrath on them. Verse 16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Verse 16 is God's way of saying through the prophet Habakkuk to the aggressor, what goes around comes around. It said in verse 15 that he uncovered the nakedness of his prey, meaning bringing about shame and, uh, and victimhood. God says, I'm going to do that to you as well. Drink, show your uncircumcision. That's God's way of using a shocking and graphic picture to show that Babylon's complete lack of self-control regarding other nations is shameful and demonstrates that they are not God's people. Circumcision was a sign that the, that the individual was one of God's people, and God's saying, you are going to drink of my wrath, and you are going to demonstrate that you are not my people. As the Chaldeans made Judah drunk, God would force a cup on them. The glory and power that uh, the glory and power that Chaldea enjoyed in the last woes that we looked at as they were building themselves up, all will be lost. God himself will knock them down. And we know from history that it's the Persians that do this. But make no mistake, God, who is raising up the Babylonians to be a tool of correction against Judah, is also going to be the one who raises up the Persians to wipe out the Babylonians for their crimes. Verse 17, the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So in addition to the violence and theft done to the nations, the empire plundered the resources, the forests and animals of Lebanon, adding to the destruction and terror that God will send Babylon When scripture talks about Lebanon, it often, almost always, talks about the wealth of Lebanon in its forests, its grand forests. That's how uh, uh, the forests that supplied Solomon in all the the great buildings and expansions that he did as he is purchasing lumber from Lebanon. Lebanon was known for being a, a territory full of natural resources, and Babylon has stolen. So God is Uh, is angry at Babylon for what they've done to people, what they've done to nations, even what they've done to nature and natural resources. He has ransacked the natural kingdom. So he calls it the violence done to Lebanon. So verse 17 acts as a summary of the crimes against the nations by the Chaldeans. They have stolen or destroyed natural resources. They have enslaved or killed countless people. The crimes against humanity are great, but the crimes against God, well, those are of an eternal weight because God is eternal in scope. Verse 18, we start our fifth 
woe, the folly or foolishness of making idols. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. Here's key. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. How foolish. The Chaldeans are building an empire. They trust in their own intellect. They are trusting in their own strength and strategy. But could they stand when going against the one true God? Will they stand? No, not for a moment. Because they're trusting in the creation of their own hands. An idol is anything in our lives that fills some aspect that God is supposed to fill for us. Trusting something rather than trusting God. For some, their idol is their standing in community. How will people view me? Rather than wondering, how does God view me? For others, their idol is power. How can I influence others to be like me or or to be the way I think they should be? rather than how can I help people to be like Christ? The number and variety of idols we could list today is only limited by our own imagination because our hearts are a factory endlessly producing idols. There's so many good things that we turn into idols. Verse 17 gives us some easy logic. It's very easy to piece together that the one who fashions the idol must be greater than the thing that he fashions. Still people, for almost as long as we've been on the planet, have been fashioning idols and worshiping them. And it's not just, it's not just pagans in the middle of nowhere that have no concept of God. Reading the book of Exodus, and God's people made an idol out of gold. And then lied about it. Oh, the gold just came out of the fire. No, it didn't. Elijah comes to mind, not because he built idols, but because he went up against those who worshipped idols. He was there on Mount Carmel with all the priests of Baal, a whole herd of them. And then uh, he was just the one lowly prophet of God. So it's one against a legion or a herd or a flock. I don't know what you call a bunch of priests gathered together. And Elijah makes fun of them. They've spent all day crying out to their God. And what's Elijah say? Oh, well, maybe he's on vacation. He can't hear you. Maybe he's asleep. You need to wake him up first. Maybe he's going to the bathroom. If you don't believe me, go look it up. It's what he says. Yet when Elijah prays to God, God answers in a very specific and spectacular manner, does he not? You remember the story. God sends fire down from heaven that not only ignites the altar that has been doused in water, it consumes the altar and the sacrifice and all the water in the trench around it. Elijah didn't have to scream or cut himself or somehow get God's attention. He just prayed. 
So you have all these men who are priests of Baal, worshiping an idol, and what does that idol do for them? Elijah prays to the one true God, and God shows up in spectacular form. People who do not have God have built, have within them still a desire to worship, uh, this, this need to worship someone or something, and so we do. So to carve an idol out of wood or stone or to fashion an image out of metal gave them a certain satisfaction. It filled that gap, but it didn't fill it correctly. It didn't fill it fully. It scratches that itch that they have built in them to worship, yet that idol can do nothing for them. How foolish are those who find satisfaction in worshiping idols of their own making, yet that's exactly who the Chaldeans are. So we see the woe in verse 19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! I'm standing at a wooden lectern. How creepy would that be if it actually did awake and do something? I'm not afraid. It's not going to happen. It says to a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach this thing that someone has crafted and then made it look pretty with gold and silver? Pouring in all sorts of effort and even expense into making this idol, but it's still all the effort of man. I would posit for you today that the greatest evil mankind commits is not enslavement or rape or murder. Those are all vile. I'm not diminishing how vile those are. But the greatest evil we humans do is to put someone or something in the place of God. Even as I say that, to say that something's worse than murder or rape or enslavement doesn't sound right but that's how great our God is that's how eternal he is in holiness and stature when we trust something that is not God we are committing mankind's greatest sin but do we ever think of it that way I don't stand here before you trusting in my own strength. I know I don't have strength. I know that I have to rely on God. I spend lots of time in prayer and preparation so that God would be used in me as I stand in front of you because I know that any effort that I do on my own is worthless. But could I stand here in my own strength? Yes, I could. And would that be a greater evil than murdering someone? Yes, it would. Because rather than violating an individual by taking their life, I'm looking at God and saying, you're not worth my time. I'm looking at the eternal God who created me and said, oh, I can do this. Yet how easily 
do we go through life without depending on God? Making idols in our own hearts. To worship is to have a reverence or devotion to someone or something. That's a very basic definition. We are designed and we do worship. Question is, are we going to worship God? Our culture does not worship manufactured physical idols as, as we find in our passage today. That's, that's not who our culture is. There are cultures around the world that do, even today. That's not our culture. We have a whole different set of idols. We do worship. We revere famous people. Popular musicians or athletes or actors. Why is it that studios can pay someone millions of dollars to pretend to be someone else? They can afford to pay them millions of dollars because we as a society worship them. We worship our children, not in the bow down and revere them sense, but in a way too many adults whose lives revolve completely around their children. There's nothing else that takes precedence. Worship, doesn't, worship of God doesn't take precedence over their children. And then when the kids are all out of the house, the marriage, which should have always been central to the family, falls apart because the parents were so, fo- so focused on their children and neglected each other and they neglected their relationship with God. We worship the almighty dollar. So we take the promotion and raise even though that additional responsibility means that we're going to be less faithful at church. We're not going to be able to participate in things at church that we should. Do we even consider that God Almighty is more powerful than the Almighty Dollar? Do we consider that God Almighty can stretch a lesser salary and give you contentment? And he can take a greater salary and make you more pressured and feel more broke. I'm not promising you a fuller bank account if you're faithful in attending church, but I will repeat God's promise to you found in the book of Philippians. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. In that passage, he's talking about the Philippians and their sacrificial giving and, and, and Paul says, you give what you can to God. God's never going to let you down. He's going to supply the needs that you have. Do we really trust him? Or do we trust the dollar? Verse 20 puts everything into perspective. Rather than trusting in our own strength or worshiping the idols that we fashion ourselves, Our reverence needs to be to our creator. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Very short verse, yet very powerful in its application. Where are idols? Well, they're wherever we put them. 
If we're talking about physical idols. If we're talking about uh, the idols of our own making in our own culture and our own society, they are all here in physical form and they can all be taken away. Where is our Lord? He is in his temple. What can take it away? Physical idols can be burnt, can be stolen. Our cultural idols can all be taken away. We think inflation is bad now. The dollar could be worth nothing. Then what will we do? Not the Lord. He's untouchable. God alone is in a position to receive our worship. He is not crafted by man's hands. He is not limited by man's imagination or resources. He is lifted high in the heavenly, holy temple. And so we worship him. He alone is in a position to receive our praise and our fear. For us to love and exalt For us to glorify and magnify. And interestingly, in verse 20, God alone is worthy of our worship to stand in reverent silence. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Have you ever worshiped in silence? Perhaps. There was a time you were reading in his word and you were just astonished at what you read and you were in your heart of worship, you were magnifying him in your heart, but you were speechless. That's the level of awe that this verse is pointing us to. In the context of the book of Habakkuk, the prophet has been bringing his complaint to God and it is now time to keep silent. Judah, when they hear this oracle of warning from Habakkuk, they will want to tell God all the reasons that God should not bring about this calamity. But it's time for them to be silent. Babylon, should they hear this oracle that is directly against them, they will want to complain that other nations aren't being threatened with destruction like they are. They're just as bad. It may be true. God will not hear their cries. So what is the point of these five woes? Last week's three, today's two. Well, first I think we see that there is a clarity that God hates sin. Take us back to, to chapter 1, where Habakkuk is, is complaining about the sin. And I say the word complaining in the best of ways. He is coming to God in a lament, saying, Your people, uh, there's this injustice that, that is permeating your land. And the law seems powerless to fix it. He appeals to God because he knows God hates Injustice. God hates immorality. We see that come through in these woes. God hates idolatry. 
the woes focus on the sin of a wrongful worship by the Chaldeans, because that's who these five woes are aimed directly at. But who's this message actually given to? It's given to the people of God, not to the Chaldeans. They, they may have heard of it, I don't know. This is given to Habakkuk, a prophet of Judah. Even though the focus is on the sin of wrongful worship by the Chaldeans, the reality is the sins of Judah are categorically the same. They worship selfish ambition more than they're worshiping God. They fail to worship God as he is worthy. The problem really lies in the fact that all people in all eras sin against God. And not only do we sin against God, we sin against God in these same ways. Does our selfish ambition look different than the warmongering empire? Yes, it, it looks different. But it's still selfish ambition. It's still sin. It's still condemning. So everybody worships Chaldeans worshipped their own might, their own leaders. The Judeans were supposed to be worshipping God. They weren't doing a very good job of it. Everybody worships. What's the answer? What's the answer to the problems of the Judeans' lack of worship or the Chaldeans' outright rebellion? Actually, you could call Judah outright rebellious too. Who can fix our broken heart that worships all the wrong things? You know the answer. Only Jesus. Jesus is the one who rectifies that situation that is passed down to everyone. Jesus alone can make us able to worship God genuinely. Oh sure, anyone can show up at a church service and go through motions, but only Jesus can make it to where we're actually worshiping in our hearts. I can tell you all of the evils of drunkenness and idolatry, of causing shame on others, as we saw in, in the first woe today. I can tell you to just try harder, and maybe you'll find a level of success for a while. But the real issue lies deeper than our actions. It is always our heart. It's our desires and our motivations. Jesus died as the punishment for our sin. For my sin. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That what we really deserve for that sin is death. But God showed his love. How do you do that? By sending Jesus to die for us in our place. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. God designed us to be worshipers. 
to be followers of Jesus Christ, who worship him daily and as we gather together corporately. Yet worship is not just a matter of actions. It is always a matter of our hearts. Will you worship him today? Will you examine yourself and see what is preventing you from worshiping him today? Or will you just go through the motions? I trust that you will worship him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. That it's by faith that you change us in him. It's not by our actions. It's not by things we do at church, things that we say. It's by believing that we are sinners in violation of a holy God. And that Jesus' death for us alone can save. So we surrender to you through him. And we become your child. Thank you for your gift of salvation. Because what we've seen so far in our, in, in our study in Habakkuk is just how very much you hate sin and we've come to the conclusion how very easily we all can commit those same kinds of sins. And to be honest, it doesn't matter the degree of our sin. It's the fact that we sin that sets us at odds with you. So Father, help us to not compare our sin to the sins of someone else. That seems worse. Help us to compare our sins rather to our righteous, perfect, holy Savior. For it's only then will we rec really, really see how the sin that remains in us is so vile. So Lord, help us to confess and turn from those sins and be restored. For someone who's here today who has never confessed, never believed, Lord, I pray that today you would make them holy that they would humbly respond in repentance and faith, knowing that Jesus is the only way of salvation, that you'd make them a new creature. Father, thank you for your word, how it challenges us, how it convicts us, and how it uplifts us and encourages us. Help us to be followers of Jesus Christ in all we say and do in Jesus' name. As we